Welcome to the Everyday PM Podcast, the podcast where we discuss project management principles for your everyday life. My name is Ann Campia, and I'm a certified project slash program manager with a decade of experience working for healthcare, retail, consumer goods, and tech industries. I am so excited to welcome John Dyer, who's an author, coach, and trainer with 36 years of experience in the field of improving processes. His published book, which I have in my hand right now, The Facade of Excellence, Defining a New Normal of Leadership, examines the four leadership styles required to move an organization's culture uh, from trust, collaboration, and teamwork. So John, you started your career with General Electric um, and then worked for Ingersoll Rand before starting your own consulting company. Um, primarily what we're going to focus on today is you and your book and everything that you're doing. So John, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the Everyday PM audience. And for those who have not met you yet, can you please take a brief moment to introduce yourself to the audience? Your audience and maybe share a little bit of uh, my background and, and history and, and talk a little bit about the book. Um, so my career started uh, with General Electric, as you mentioned. I was on their management program for two years and then eight years in their major appliance division. And early in my career, I was a process engineer actually on second shift <laughs> Uh, where anybody who's worked second shift in manufacturing knows that's where everything really happens. And I just started to notice more and more that processes that were poorly designed resulted in bad output. And too often the operators would get blamed for things that they had no control over. And I, I write about this some in, in the book about some of the uh, things that happened early in my career where it became clear that management wanted to blame someone when something went wrong versus taking a step back and saying, OK, what happened in the process that allowed that to go wrong and how can we redesign the system so it never happens again? So. Like I said, I started becoming interested in this brand new area that people were beginning to talk about called process improvement, continuous process improvement. Mm -hmm. That's back when TQM, total quality management, was just getting started. Quality circles were just getting started. So I went to the leaders of uh, my plant and suggested that we start some improvement teams. And we had some early successes and we had some horrible failures, but there were enough successes to where they said, well, you know, there might be something to this whole idea of team-based continuous improvement. So they asked me to go into one of these dream jobs where for two years I was on special assignment going around the country collecting best practices and then bringing that knowledge back to the GE executives and training them on these new techniques. You know, now this is before Lean was really very well known. This was before Six Sigma. So this was in the very, very early days. And I got a chance to uh, attend, uh, you know, training from some of the real pioneers in this area, like Dr. Ed Deming. I got to go to Motorola University to learn Six Sigma from the people who actually wrote the book on Six Sigma. And wow. this was before belts were given out. 
uh, I got to go to the Stephen Covey Institute in Utah uh, to learn from him, you know, about the same time that Seven Habits was coming out. That's okay. uh, I, of course, I got to go to all the different divisions within GE and GE Corporate. Uh, I got to, you know, interact with uh, Jack Welch uh, several times. So it was a great couple of years. Then they said, all right, you've learned all these techniques on how to improve things. Now we want to see if you can actually apply it. So they sent me to Bloomington, Indiana, where we made side-by-side -side refrigerators, about 2,500 employees. Um, they gave me all the technical resources. So all the quality engineers, uh, manufacturing engineers, industrial engineers, all the inspectors. Uh, and they, the head of major appliances sat down with me. And at that time, they were really struggling. They had a lot of quality issues, a lot of problems. And he said, John, he said, you know, you've learned all about how to improve things, how to improve quality and how to get teams and all that. He said, I'm giving you a blank check, basically. You can change whatever you want about this plant. But it was our main money maker. So he said, you know, whatever you do, don't screw it up. So you can, you know, change it to make it run better, to improve quality. Just don't, uh, just don't mess anything up along the way. And um, I was there for three years, and we made significant changes. We changed the entire organizational structure. We went to focus factories. We went to teams on the shop floor, uh, and we just saw a huge um, improvement in quality. Well, Ingersoll Rand heard about that and they called me up one day and said, uh, you know, they gave me one of those offers you just can't refuse um, <laughs> to come work for them and do the same thing uh, in several of their plants. They also fully funded an international executive MBA through Purdue University and the University of Rouen in France. Um, and then I worked my way up to a corporate vice president position. That's actually what brought me to North Carolina, and um, I was responsible for the Lean and Six Sigma implementation for Ingersoll Rand on a global basis, uh, wow. my team and I. And I did that for several years and then decided to start my own consulting company, and that was 16 years ago. So I've been doing consulting, and I've had the opportunity to work with many, many great organizations, both manufacturing and non-manufacturing. You know, people don't realize that a lot of these same tools and techniques and discussions on leadership and culture apply to a hospital or a mm -hmm. nonprofit organization uh, or a government group as they do in manufacturing. Um, about eight years ago, I started writing articles for a magazine called Industry Week. In fact, Industry Week, in the early days of my career at General Electric, was one of the few publications at that time that were starting to talk about, you know, process improvement and teamwork. And that's actually how I got introduced to Dr. Deming. So that's wow. that was kind of the connection. So I decided to start writing articles for them. Um, and then one of the articles turned out to be so popular that I got contacted by a publisher to ask me if I wanted to turn that into a book. And that's <laughs> what led to the book coming out. So, wow. so wow. it's, 
That's a bit of my career in a nutshell. What an incredible journey. I don't even know where to start, John. That was incredible. I think you you throw out a lot of familiar names there for those of us who have been in this space for quite some time, whether you're project managing or doing continuous improvement, change management, any of those fields. Um, but I have to ask you, as a child or as a young adult, John, were you, did you have a knack for looking at things and just saying, oh, I know how to make this better, looking at something maybe your parents <laughs> were doing? Because it just sounds like you, you inherently had this skill set. So I'd love to kind of learn where, where that all came from. Well, you know, I do remember early on wanting to know how things worked, right? And, mm -hmm. and my uh, dad grew up on a farm and I wanted to take the tractor apart to figure out how the engine worked, you know, that kind of a thing. And when I got into college, I was very interested in robotics, actually, and, and automation. And back in the 1980s, that was a very new field. So actually, you know, I, I mentioned I've got a degree in electrical engineering, but it actually had an emphasis in um, automation and robotics. But I tell you, you know, I, like I said, I didn't really get interested in this whole idea of how to improve things until I got to General Electric and started working uh, on the production line for making refrigerators. Yeah. And just seeing how how things, you know, one of the reasons they sent me to that particular plant because they knew I was interested in in uh, automation. At that time, they had just invested a huge amount of money in automating um, these systems to make refrigerators. Mm -hmm. But the way I kind of put it is, is that they, they took very badly designed processes and automated them. So <laughs> Got we it. still had bad processes. Shaky foundation. We were just there. able to yeah. make junk faster. You know, it's still uh -huh. junk, but we were able to make it faster. And that's what really opened my eyes to this, to this concept of, you know, hey, it's it's really not about automation per se. It's about how do you design the process to, to make it run smooth? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that makes sense. And and it's good to have been backed by, you know, such a large corporation. I think at the time, to your point, there are many of these companies that were trying to scale, scale quickly and automate in, in, in many areas. And, and for those who have not been privileged enough to kind of see the inner workings or to, to your experience, you actually got to work on the line and see how things are made. It's, it's a process and it's, it's a high level of effort. And if you're not there or you're not visiting a factory and kind of seeing it firsthand, it just is, really doesn't, it doesn't click for some people in terms of, oh, there's ways we can make things better. Because when you see people doing things by hand on the line, passing it to the next person, right? And you're witnessing this happen and seeing how much time and effort that takes and how many resources have to be committed to that. I can imagine in your experience having to have been on the line, that further kind of enhanced your ability to then see what could be better and to your point, what could be auto eventually be automated at GE. So, I mean, I, it just makes sense. And the point of this podcast, John, is to click everybody uh, between, you know, project management in our everyday lives. And there's people who um, may have a knack for 
figuring out how to coordinate schedules and resources. And so hence they fall into project management. So I wanted to understand, you know, as a, as a young person, if this was just something that was just inherently there with you. So that's, that's great. So let's flash forward then into 1991 when you meet Dr. Demings and, you know, you, you take his seminars and you learn about the, this, we all have learned about Demings, by the way, because I went through a master's program in project management, and that was an entire topic for one of our courses, right? So you learn about Dr. Demings, you learn about the 14 points for management. Um, the, if those For those who have not seen or heard of it, I'll make sure that we have a link to that so you can read about it. But you go through his seminars, you meet Dr. Demings, which is also incredible, uh, what is it about his work, what you took out of those seminars that has translated into what you do today, as, as well as what has translated into the book that you've, re you've written? Right. Yeah. In fact, I would highly encourage people to become familiar with the 14 points of management before reading the book, because you'll find references to those points throughout uh, and, and, and actually see them come to life. Um, it is interesting, you know, when I first went through Dr. Deming's training and got very familiar with these 14 points, I did sit down with a group of executives at General Electric and walk them through all 14 points and then ask them two questions. Which of these 14 points on a scale of, you know, one to 10 is most relevant to what we're trying to do at General Electric. And then on a scale of one to 10, how well are we, have we implemented that point? Mm. And mm. at that time, you remember this is the early 1990s, this group of executives could only agree on one point as being relevant. So that's, yeah. that's where we started, right? <laughs> that's where we're that, One out of that's, 14, that's not that's bad. How far, that's uh, that's how far, you know, kind of in the dark ages uh, we were in the 1990s. Um, and things have obviously progressed since then. But, you know, there are still a lot of organizations out there, uh, especially in the non-manufacturing, that either aren't familiar with these 14 points or still, you know, violate them on a, on a daily basis. And then back to Dr. Deming, he was a very interesting man. I mean, and, and when he found out that I was from General Electric, he would come and talk to me during the breaks and yeah. you know, ask me how things were going and, and what we were doing and those kinds of things. So, so that was great. And I've actually on my office wall, I've got a picture of me and Dr. Deming with a handwritten note that he, that he gave me. So that's one of my prized possessions. That's amazing. But I will relate one story with you that really summarizes his uh, beliefs. And, and this was in the four day class, you know, again, you got to picture this big auditorium with, uh, with quite a few uh, folks in it. Um, and during the breaks or right before each break, he would open a microphone to the audience for people to come up and ask questions. Mm -hmm. And about the second day, I believe it was of the four days, this gentleman walked up to the microphone and I mean, he was dressed in a three piece suit and, you know, introduced himself as the CEO of some major corporation. <laughs> okay. And he said, Dr. Deming, he said, I have a question for you. What makes you think, you know, how to run my company? 
what may, you know, who, who do you think you are to tell us the right way to, to do things? Wow. And Dr. Deming stood up out of his chair. Now you got to remember at this point, he's 90 years old. He's doing this entire four day class pretty much on his own. He's 90. He stands up real tall, looks directly at the gentleman and says, it is clear to me that you're not getting what I'm talking about. Oh, wow. And it's clear to me that you're never going to get what I'm talking about. Right. I'm wasting your time and you're wasting my time. I need you to leave. And the, the gentleman was escorted out of the room and the place just went, you know, crazy applauding, you know, and, and, wow. uh, but that was his style. He was very direct. He was very matter of fact, you know, you either need to change your ways or you're never going to be successful in implementing the things that, that need to happen. Yeah. And that's actually, you know, kind of the reason that I wrote the book is that, that was in the early 1990s. And, you know, we've made some progress overall in this country, but there is still a long way to go, you know, the, and, you know, we still use management systems from the in, beginning of the industrial age, <laughs> you know, to measure people and their performance. Um, to use fear to drive behavior, to um, you know focus on blaming people instead of the process, all the things that were 180 degrees counter to what Dr. Deming believed in. And it's just amazing how long it has taken to break those old paradigms of, you know, this is what a successful leader looks like mm -hmm. versus what it needs to look like. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And uh, I want to dive right into that book because it, it's currently my favorite book that I've read. Uh, it is, it is um, something that I will be using as an instructor in the spring. I am teaching a course on uh, quality in organizational leadership, and it is our main course textbook. So I, I don't even know where to start. This is how excited I am to ask you about this book because the way it's written is just so... I don't know what the right word is. It's just, it's, it's catching, right? I, I could sit down and read it in a day because it's, it's, and, and to, to that point, it's actually not a very long read, which is actually great for us who are limited in time and can just have a day to sit down and read it. But it's, it's unique in that a lot of these books that I've read either for my course or for courses that I teach, they're lengthy and they want to go through some sort of 12 step process of how you turn from manager to leader and you know here are all the keys to success and you have to follow each one in this you know sequential order and the way you've written it is fantastic so to give everyone the perspective of the way John's written it is you you have two main characters in your book you have Jim Brown who is the new executive who wants to do the right things right he inherits a staff but it's the staff that is refusing to change. And then you have Frank Smith on the other side of, of the coin, which is an executive in the same company who basically is your manager who will do anything to make himself look good, get ahead of everybody else. He will take the credit 
even though you did all the work, that type of manager, right? So the stories you convey from each of these perspectives really paint a clear picture of the dichotomy between the two, right? Like the very juxtaposition between being a manager and leader. And and the other thing I would say, John, is you take a pretty fair approach. As a reader, I don't feel like you are biased towards one or the other. I feel like you're telling two different stories and then you're allowing the reader to decide which of these are you attracted to, right? Like which of these do you uh, resonate with? And so for that reason, I have thoroughly enjoyed reading this book. Um, I'm looking forward to reading it again because I just really want to make sure I'm immersed in it before I teach on it. All of that to say, big fan of the book, but why don't we talk about taking those two perspectives? What encouraged you to create these characters and have them tell the story for you? Well, you know, and, and before I answer that, it's interesting. You know who, which one is my favorite character in the entire book? Is Mary. Who? Oh. Mary, the production worker. Yeah. She's my favorite character, right? Because the if you notice, about two-thirds of the way through the book, the the perspective shifts from the two, these mm-hmm. two gentlemen who are kind of fighting it out to how it's impacting the person on the factory floor. Yeah. And, you know, and then when there's there's a kind of a twist at the end and and the rug is pulled out from under her, and um, you know the 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 emotions that she goes through, right? And 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 actually talks through about how she would rather have not been introduced to this whole concept of mm-hmm. teamwork and and improvement, and seen how good it could be, and then have the rug pulled out. She would have rather yeah. just not have done any of it at all. So. Yeah. Um, She's she's my favorite character. But back to uh, Jim Brown and Frank Smith. So these are fictional characters. You know, I have to make that very clear because you'd be amazed at how many past people have called me up and said, you know, Frank Smith really was this person or, you know, that <laughs> I'm person. Sure. Yeah. Like, are no, you talking they, about me? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> they are compilations. You know, there are a lot of people that I have met over the years in my career who are uh, who make up Jim Brown and who make up Frank Smith. Um, but I, I wanted to tell the story from those two very different perspectives, you know, because uh, again, we've worked for both. You know, in my career, I've worked for a lot of Jim Browns and I've worked for a lot of Frank Smiths. And it's important to understand where, where they're coming from. Yeah. And do they have any, you know, uh, hope of changing? Yeah. And that, uh, you know, um, now, you know, without giving too much away, Jim Brown does, like you said, inherit a staff that doesn't want to change, but he does realize that there are steps that he can take to get them on board, that he can't just, you know, push them into this. He has to help them understand why this is important to make these changes and also be sympathetic to how it's going to impact their careers, mm-hmm. you know, because they're used to working for a command and control uh, type boss and being told what to do and how to do it. And they're comfortable in that particular situation. And now you have this new boss that comes along that's like, hey, we're going to 
stop doing a lot of the old practices and start getting our employees engaged. We want to train our employees. We want to get them on teams. And eventually we want to even empower them to actually start making decisions closest to the process so that we can become much more responsive to our customers' needs. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, their minds are just blown uh, at the beginning. And, and of course, then they rebel and push back. Mm-hmm. And he has to figure out how to how to win them over. Yeah. Frank Smith, uh, he's the villain in the book by by all means. And uh, it's funny because uh, I actually had a, a, a VP of operations tell me this, that he read the book. And he, at the end, he said, you know, he thought to himself, there's no way anyone could be as as evil and bad as Frank Smith. And then he started for the next two weeks, he said all he could see around him were Frank Smith's. <laughs> and then he started to realize that he was acting like Frank Smith oh, no. from time to time. And he said that was a big aha moment for him. And he actually ended up buying books for his whole staff. And for three weeks, they went through chapter by chapter. And he said that it was the most um in-depth dialogue that they had ever had about what was really happening in the company. Hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a whole chapter about uh, how easy it is to manipulate data. And uh, he asked the question, he said, you know, is that something that that happens within our company? And he said there was this long silence. And finally, one of his plant managers said, yeah, we do that all the time. And your predecessors Hmm. taught us how to do it. Oh my God. Yeah, how to hide the problems, how to skew the data to make it look like we're doing a lot better than we oh, really are. No. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. So he said that that, that changed their entire, um, you know, direction mm-hmm. as far as, as um, realizing they needed to change themselves as the leaders before they could even hope to change the culture and get the employees engaged. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you walk through this, I think what you call is the leadership progression model. And instead of, you know, 12 steps, there's, there's really essentially four, I don't know, phases in this model, but they make sense, right? right? To your point, you got to change, look within first before you think you can even think. And this is just even your in your everyday lives. Look within first before you start to try to change everything around you to accommodate what you where you want to be. Um, so I think there's there's life lessons in here, whether you're you you intentionally try to uh, convey those in the book or not. There's also everyday life lessons that you can learn about um, improving yourself as as a person. And, and in this case, as a manager or leader. So I think all around we get such a great perspective from you, John, and I'm I'm really thankful that you decided to engage and write this book because I'm I'm again super excited to teach it to my students. Yeah, you know the the leadership progression model where where that idea came from, and again it it goes back to the Deming's fourteen points. You know, in a couple of his points, he talks about you know abolishing like management by objectives and instead substitute leadership. And if you look at the 14 points, uh, most of them have something to do with, with leadership in one Mm -hmm. way or another. Yeah. But he never really defines 
what does that mean? You know, what does substitute leadership mean? And the confusion that I was running into with people is, is that everybody had a different definition of what a good leader is, right? If yeah. you've served in the military, your def definition of a good leader or, you know, the characteristics and traits of a good leader is going to be significantly different than, let's say, if you were on a championship sports team in college, right? And, and talking about the coach, that coach has a lot different leadership traits and characteristics than say a military leader or say a business leader that has inherited a company that is about to go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. So it then started to become clear that maybe one of our problems is that we try to fit everybody in the same box. And in fact, there are different types of leadership and different needs of the organization mm -hmm. and and you've got to match those two things up you know if the organization's in crisis you really do want someone who's willing to take responsibility and make the tough decisions and get right. things moving in a particular direction and with a sense of urgency the problem though is is too often leaders that are good at crisis management are not necessarily good at developing teams or mm -hmm. empowering uh, employees. So the leadership progression model said, you know, is basically a spectrum between dictator and collaborator. And it's, it breaks it into four different pieces. So you have the crisis manager. Then the next step in the progression is to start asking your employees for ideas for how to improve. And that's a very important step because right. it starts to get people engaged. It starts getting them to look at things for the future. Then you want to migrate to the team forming leader where you actually start forming in-depth problem solving teams um, with trained facilitators. You know, it's a lot more than just doing a, a Kaizen type event here or there. These are, you know, teams that have a lot of structure that dive deep into problems and try to permanently solve them. And then eventually you want the empowerment leader where you've got groups of employees that are so well trained, so uh, accustomed to working together in a team, understands their processes thoroughly. And whenever there is a, a new need or a customer changes their mind or a problem occurs, they are so well at adapting and working together that they can solve problems right there on the shop floor and be empowered to make the necessary changes to get the process back up and running and, and achieve good safety, good quality, good throughput. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and one one part of the one of the stories that resonates with me is when you talk about um, I believe it's Jim who asked the staff to take a hand in doing these quality walks across, you know, the, the line, you know, which is an area, I guess, of this, this fictitious, like office that they normally don't walk through, um, you know, and, and a lot of the, the team was adverse to that. They said, well, I, that's kind of beneath me. What am I doing? You know, why are you asking me to do this? But it, it really does take the effort of everyone 
And, and and to your earlier point, you know, an understanding from your perspective, whether you are the gym or you're part of Jim's team, to understand all of the things that the, the teams are enduring to have to make, you know, to, to produce quality products. And and I, I love that story just for the simple fact that I, I feel like I've I'm sure all of us have kind of lived through something similar where uh, you know, you've got a leader who has the best intentions and, and wants to follow this progression, right? And get everybody collaborating, but sometimes it needs to be the right fit. And I love that you say it needs to match with where the organization is at. And that, I think that's really important as well, is that you have to be able to flex your leadership style to what the organi organizational right. needs are at that time. And as the organization kind of comes out of whatever crisis that is, sure, go back to, you know, the way that you wanted to try to lead the teams. But uh, you see Jim go through that progression, too. And it's 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 pretty amazing to to also have a lot of his stories and feelings resonate with things that we've experienced as managers, too. So, John, I think uh, right. I would go ahead. What I was going to say is, and, and this is why it's so critically important to make sure that people like in human resources are engaged with what what's going on. People like, even like on the board of directors that hired the, the CEOs, because think about it, right, is that let's say you do have an organization that has progressed all the way through those four stages and have gotten to empowerment. Mm -hmm. And then the board of directors decides that, you know, the CEO retires and decides that, hey, we're just going to bring on the person who is the has the most uh, experience in this field. And they, they don't take into consideration at all that the leadership style of that person. Right. And now that new person comes in and decides to start leading like it was in a crisis situation. At that point, the entire improvement, lean, Six Sigma effort will fall apart. Sure. Yeah. And um, so if the wrong people and, and, you know, to, I hear this all the time, right, where companies have launched a very aggressive lean initiative and then two years later it fizzles out. Mm -hmm. And I'll bet that the root cause of most of those initiatives that have fallen apart is because the wrong people were promoted or hired yeah. Yeah. into the organization and the new leaders had the wrong style to match where that organization was in their um, leadership progression. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that entire process, right, is iterative. It should be where you can come in, think you've got a pulse on what's going on, but changes happen. So we got to be able right. to kind of move with those changes as well. So I think, John, you've presented such a, a, I guess the best way is like a personable, a very normal way of looking at management versus leadership in your book. And for that, I'm really appreciative. And I hope that the audience is able to pick it up and read it as well. Um, John, that will do it for us in this installment of the Everyday PM podcast. I really do appreciate your time today. You've brought such a breadth of knowledge and, and experiences and shared some wonderful stories with our audience. So thank you for that. John, if people want to continue the conversation with you, where can they find you online? I'm on LinkedIn and I'd be happy to connect with anybody. Uh, and then on um, Twitter, you can find me at, uh, at 
John Dyer PI. Um, and that's the best ways to, to connect with me. Um, awesome. Well, I, I, and, and through this book as well, because it's definitely given me a lot to talk about with my, my students as well. So thank you, John, again. And for the folks listening, feel free to support the Everyday PM podcast. We are available on all of your podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, you name it. Uh, while you're there, leave us a five-star review if you can. A great comment would be nice too. You can find the video version of this podcast on my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash Ancampia. While you're there, click subscribe, like this video, leave John and I a great comment, feedback, anything you'd like to say about this conversation today, and click the bell for notifications so you know when new content comes up. So again, thank you all so much for joining us. And until next time, take care.